Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the book of John, chapter 10. As you know, it's been a great and wonderful opportunity for us to look at the polarizing truths of the person of Jesus. In our culture, in our era especially, there's a call to believe in a Jesus without making any effort at all to explain who he is. And it really comes down to explaining these important, deep, critical truths that leads a person to the place where he will either believe or disbelieve. It's never really a compelling argument to ask somebody to embrace Jesus when the Jesus that they proclaim is not even described at all from Scripture. And of course, the world wants to believe that Jesus is loving. You'll even hear people say things like, Jesus never said that in the Bible, even though Paul said it. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 that it is the word of Christ. Everything in your Bible ought to be red letters. It's all the word of Christ, every ounce of it. And so he's behind it all. We saw that in John 1. The word of God is him. He is the word of God. And so as we look at the person of Jesus, the more compelling he becomes for the person who wants to acknowledge that he needs forgiveness for his sins. On the other hand, the more we see who he is, the more the person who does not want to acknowledge his sinfulness is willing to reject him. The trouble is that until that message, that dual message, the reality that Jesus being the God-man, the sovereign God of grace who took on flesh, demands that sin be addressed and really judged. On the other hand, the reality that he grants forgiveness to all those who will repentantly and humbly pursue the person of Christ. Until a person really comes to grips with those dual realities, he lives in this false sense of security. He lives with this idea that Jesus is good and I want to, you know, have Jesus in my life. And until someone, perhaps numerous someones, come along and display the reality about what Jesus really says about himself and about what he calls the follower of Jesus to be and do, he will live in that false sense of security. When that really begins to be exposed is when a person begins to get angry with the Word of God. Typically, it starts with being angry with the messenger. We looked at this in James a couple of weeks ago, where James calls mankind not to engage in anger. He's not dealing with anger generically there. He's pointing out the reality that there are those who angrily respond to the word of God. And as I said, typically that anger is transferred to the messenger. The person who faithfully proclaims the word of God is the object of the false convert's anger. And typically that results in gossip and slander and many efforts to divide the church. We've been blessed as a local church. You're blessed with strong, humble Leaders who, at the moment when something like that begins to surface, then it's addressed by grace with truth. And so the Lord over the years has prevented us from experiencing the devastating reality of a faction developing with someone who has an alternate message with an ulterior motive. And when that has begun to happen, 
the Lord exposes it pretty quickly. There have been a handful of folks who have tried, but because they have no credibility, they lose any degree of respect from those that they might hope to influence. Every month I have the privilege of meeting with all of our leaders, all of our elders, our elders in training, our family group shepherds. It's really, really a rich, rich time. There have been times where we've addressed one another's sin, and there's a quick and humble response to say, thank you for addressing that. And I, I not only would give consideration to that later, I want you to know that I'm humbled by your love for me in the moment. You are welcome always to come to the open session in our elders meeting because we want you to see how we function. And you can be confident that the leadership of your church loves Christ first and therefore loves you. The result of our love for the Word of God means that we study and we study hard and we endeavor to plainly and clearly display a unity in the sufficiency of Scripture. So the Lord's developed a a strong, humble coalition of godly under-shepherds in our church. We are under-shepherds. There is the one chief shepherd, and we follow him. And the unity that the Lord provides in any local church begins with what one's commitment to the Word of God actually is. There's a lot going on right now in social media, in religious circles related to the matter of women in ministry. Paul is just about as clear about that as he could possibly be. First of all, women and men are equal. There's no greater value of men as over against women. And anyone who thinks so in looking in the Scripture has misunderstood what's going on. A lot of people will refer to Old Testament passages where women are given seemingly a lesser place. That was certainly a cultural reality as it has been throughout nearly every culture in history. But never is that endorsed in Scripture. Men and women are equal across the board, but have different roles. And so in the Southern Baptist Convention, there is a growing divide over this at the hands of a very irresponsible woman named Beth Moore. Years ago, I remember exposing Joyce Meyer in the church where I was on staff and sat down with a number of women and pointed out her heresies. And by the end of that meeting, though they came in there expecting to win the argument about how great Joyce Meyer was, they agreed, wow, Todd, thank you so much for showing this. And one of the gals said to me on the way out, now if you bring up Beth Moore, we'll scratch your eyes out. And that's the kind of loyalty that she has developed over the years because she's funny, she's a tremendous communicator, and she presents herself well. She's led a lot of people down the path of thinking that God speaks to you in addition to what the Word of God says. She's actually got a phenomenally low view of Scripture, and therefore she's looking for God to speak to her and to you in other ways, rather than the sufficiency of God's Word. So as we look at this passage together this morning, John goes deep here, as you know, for those of you who have been working on this passage in order to understand it better. By the way, I sent the study guide out to you on Monday Apparently some of you didn't receive it, so I sent it again on Thursday. I hope that you're finding it to be a joy working through this. Your so that statement, as you know, is intended to kind of get you on board with where this passage goes. 
what's the point? This was a hard one for me, I confess, and so I think I've written maybe the longest so that statement in the history of my life, but I believe it's all important, every word of it. So I'm going to read it to you. You can follow along in your bulletin. It's there for you. So that many more will learn of God's works and believe in Jesus. That's the, uh, the upshot of the so that statement. Most often we put that at the end, but I find that the longer the so that statement gets, the more I probably need to put it at the beginning so that you know what the orthopractical purpose of the statement is. Does that make sense? The longer the sentence is, the more you forget the first part of the sentence. And so if we start with the simple part, the easy part, the part that tells us what to do, the more we can understand what comes after that. So that's why I've inverted it that way. I hope that's helpful. So that many more will learn of God's works and believe in Jesus. That's who we are as a local body. That is the essence of why we get up in the morning, why we meet here together, why we gather for being equipped in our discipleship ministries, why we gather together in our family groups to minister to each other intimately in each other's lives, praying together, eating together, confessing sins together. This is it. This is our mission statement, that we would be useful that those whom God will save will find their way to him through the pathway of our faithful efforts. And they're not generic efforts. They're not any old efforts. They're not simply good deeds. Good deeds are critical for the Christian. We're predestined to do good works. But it's not just about doing good works. It is about redemption as a result of the efficacious death of Christ on the cross, that he actually saved people. And by actually saving them, he began the sanctifying work that sets them apart from unbelievers. And by God's grace, it sets them apart from false believers, false converts, those who would embrace a false Jesus, a Jesus of their own design, their own definition, does not result in sanctification. It rather results in covering up of sin, not uncovering of sin, so that it can be dealt with and triumphed over. So again, so that many more will learn of God's works and believe in Jesus. We will see that the Father and the Son, two persons, are one essence with one purpose and will, what is that purpose and will? That the Father gives sheep to the Son and secures them. He keeps them forever. That's what he says. You came across this, if you even spent a little bit of time in this passage, no one will snatch them from my Father's hand. Why? Because they're secured in eternity past. Scripture interprets Scripture. You see this connectivity from the beginning through the end. Scripture does not contradict itself. And so as you go on and on and on and see all these calls for repentance, the calls to come to Jesus, the calls to stand before the Lord and really fall before the Lord and know the Lord and trust the Lord and obey the Lord, all of that ultimately glorifies Him because it's within His sovereign design. And the person who rejects that and attempts to over-humanize, hyper-humanize the Scripture, 
refuses to acknowledge that God is greater than he and he must understand everything in every detail, rejects the words of Paul where he says, I speak to you in human terms, and then begins to display those humanistic ways of thinking that are not divine ways of thinking. They display a distrust in the Lord. Paul, Jesus, John, James, Peter, they all call us to be subject to the person of God by being moved by the truth that he gives to us. And one of these great truths is profoundly revealed to us in John 10. And as I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, John 10, although you don't see this so much in black and white terms, John 10 is as much hated as any chapter in the Bible by those who profess a false Jesus. So they'll do everything they can to attempt to describe different forms of atonement, different presentations of the atonement of Christ rather than what you see throughout Scripture. As we look at this together, I'm convinced you'll see the oneness of the works of the Father and the Son. What does this oneness mean? Now let's talk a moment about a heresy that you, I think, probably most of you quite well understand. That's the oneness movement or the modalistic concept within the Pentecostal movement. T.D. Jakes is probably the best-known claimer of oneness theology, the false theology that says that God manifests himself in three different personalities, or he manifests himself at different times in three different forms or formats. That's heresy. That is not the God of the Bible. God is three persons, all of whom have been and always will be persons, each who is God, but together the triune Godhead. And this morning in our text, we see this oneness. Now, I'll get into more detail about this later, but this isn't the passage you want to go to to defend the deity of Jesus. You might have thought so. The Father and the Son are one. Well, Jesus prays for that oneness Not the oneness of the Pentecostal movement, but that oneness for those whom he would die, those whom he would save in John 17. He prays for that oneness. He says, the oneness that I have with the Father, and I believe it's a reference to this passage. So when Pentecostals talk about oneness, what they mean, modalistically speaking, is that God is one, but he is not three. So they would defy the reality that he has always been three persons. This is heresy. That false doctrine leads people into an eternity of torment. But here in our passage this morning, you see this oneness of the Father and the Son. Now the Jews interpret him as declaring to be God, but it's not just because of what he says here. Certainly they see this in what he's saying, and there is some element of that. Let's look at it. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, while Jesus declares the greatness of the Father, one of the reasons, in fact, the primary reason for which the Jews hated him was because he declared himself to be one with the Father. He had already, at this point, told them that unless you believe that I am he... You will die in your sins. That was one of the many times that they picked up stones in an effort to kill him. They wanted to execute him. This oneness, though, that Jesus speaks of here is not primarily 
oneness of essence. Why do I say that? Because he goes on to describe the works. You remember from last week, it was the works that Jesus points to in order to call people to believe in him. It's what he has, has certainly accomplished. We looked at those works. You can listen to the message online. We walked through those miraculous works throughout the book of John. But back in chapter 6, verse 37, he says, all that the Father gives me. Now stop there. That's a display of this sovereign oneness. That's an expression of the metaphysical oneness that they share in action, the ontological oneness that they share a nature, they share essence. But that's not his main emphasis. His main emphasis is the works that they do because of that essence. Because they are one, they do these works. I do the works of whom? My Father. I came not to do my own will, but the will of my Father. And right there, people would look at that with a humanistic mindset and say, well, wait a minute, obviously they have two different wills. What is Jesus displaying there? His humanity, his incarnation that he set aside for a time, his deified prerogatives. He subordinated himself to the Father as the Son. And in so doing, he divested himself of his deified prerogatives just for that period of time, some of which he chose to take up from time to time. Doesn't make him not God for a time. It simply means he's subordinating himself. And so he puts himself in your shoes, essentially. He makes himself an example. He's not just an example. That's, that's a works system where we look at Jesus and say, oh, what a great example. We'll follow him. That's a works salvation system. Just be like Jesus. You know, what would Jesus do? Let's just do that. And that's not really helpful because the reality is that we're not Jesus. So he's not just our example. He is our creator. He is the sovereign God of heaven, the bread of heaven who came down from heaven and took on flesh. And in so doing, he does the Father's will. You say, well, did he not know the Father's will? Is it that he would have done something different if the Father hadn't told him his will? Well, he does pray in the garden, Lord, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what? My will, but what? Thy will be done. And so it's not as if there's a disparity between their wills. It is that in taking on flesh and becoming incarnate, he establishes himself as God of very God, yet man of very man. He is man in every way that you and I are, yet without sin. And so he trusted the Father. If you look at 1 Peter 2, you get to the end of the chapter, and there's this watershed expression. I, I believe it's fundamental to the Christian faith that we would ask the question, how did Jesus do what he did? He entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. This is major help in marriage counseling, which, by the way, is the context in that passage, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 tells men and women how to deal with each other. Women are to, by their gentle and quiet spirit, to win their husbands over without a word. And that might sound like an insult to women, but it's actually more of an insult to men because what it says is sometimes men don't listen. And so the godly woman, the reverent woman, would win her husband over, not 
by manipulating him with her words, but by trusting the Holy Spirit as she remains gentle and reverent. And I've seen that in my own life more times than I could possibly count. It's convicting, but it's also a little insulting. And what I mean by that is that I need that insult. I brought it on myself. Not, not that my wife or the Lord intends to insult me. I'm simply saying the offensive reality of my own condition needing to be won over without a word because at times I can be headstrong, uh, stubborn, prideful. It's the work of the Spirit that sweeps in in the absence of words. Husbands in that text are called to live with their wives in an understanding way, and it doesn't mean that he needs to be so intelligent that he understands the female species. Uh, That would be supernatural intelligence. (laughs) But he's understanding of her, right? He doesn't need to totally figure her out. He should try. He should do his very best to know her and know her well. But as he lives with her, he does so understandingly. He's patient, he's gracious, he's slow to speak, quick to listen, does not get angry where her life displays a reverence for the word of God. Rather, he rejoices in that and sits back and puts his hand over his mouth and says, wow, Lord, look what you're doing, do that in me. So where he says, I and the Father are one, wow, what a great example. What a great example to all men, to all women, that we would live in that oneness, right? Back to 1 Peter 2. He entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. Think of the Father this way. Think of him this way. He is unable to do that which is unrighteous. And so, in the moment where you feel as though you are being treated unrighteously, a couple things might be going on there. One, you might be wrong. Two, you might be right. And even if you're right, the Father, who is sovereign over all things, is not unrighteous. And therefore, your better response is to thank God that he is sovereign in the details. But if you reject the truth that he's sovereign in the details, you'll only continue with a very, very frustrated life. You'll be frustrated with everyone who speaks faithfully from the Word of God, and you'll be very frustrated in your own life, in your inability to display the sovereignty that the Father and the Father alone possesses. So this oneness that the Father and the Son possess is not only an essential or a natural oneness of character, it is one of works. Back to John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me, right? This is the Father's plan. The Son is subordinate by will to that plan. In eternity past, he was completely part of that plan. He authored the plan. But subordinating himself by taking on flesh, he now submits himself to that plan, calling it the Father's plan. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And we should put great emphasis on that. And we should not attempt in any way to try to decipher who, prior to them coming to him, are those that the Father has given to the Son. We have no business doing that. Paul didn't do that. Paul prayed for all the Jews, every one of them. Every one of them. And he was clearly committed to the reality that the Father gives them to the Son. John 17, 9. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Wow, is that clear? 
Isn't that just so crystal clear? And yet there are those who will attempt to destroy this passage. So I was looking at, um, some time ago, the uh, Facebook page of a guy who used to teach at a Christian university for many years. He's attempting to destroy the doctrine of the deity of Christ. So someone, in an effort to support him, posted an article called 45 Passages That You've Gotten Wrong About the Deity of Jesus. Now that alone is a self-destructive argument. The very fact that there are at least 45 passages that so clearly display the deity of Jesus and that you've got to go through them one at a time and undo them, explain them away. You wonder how in the world the guy didn't see when he titled the article that, that he was refuting his own argument. Back to John 17 in Jesus' high priestly prayer, Verse 10, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. You see the oneness here, the Father and the Son? Verse 11, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, not the world, right? Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Wait a minute, so one of them got lost? Per the sovereign prescription of the Lord. He goes on to say that the scripture might be fulfilled. It was prescribed, sovereignly decreed by God that the son of perdition would abandon Christ even to be involved in his execution. So I and the Father are one. And this is displayed in the reality that my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, in Arminianism, the fifth, originally the fifth point of Arminianism displayed the idea that you could lose your salvation. That's what you might call historical Arminianism. Most Arminians don't believe that today, as far as I know. Because if anything's clear in Scripture is that when God saves someone, it is an eternal work that can't be undone. We just looked at that, right, in John 10. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. In that way, we looked last week at the fact that Jesus keeps his sheep forever. This week, it's Jesus and the Father keep them forever. That's what you see in this text. Now, I and the Father, this is a singular masculine noun. The term one here, the Greek numeric term hen, is neuter in gender. It's not masculine or feminine. If he had used the masculine, hase, he would be saying that they were one person. That the Father and the Son are one person, and then you would have a case for modalism, for the oneness theology of the Pentecostals. That, though, as you know, would defy what John has said in John 1.1, that the word was with God, two persons, as well as many numerous texts throughout the Scripture. So this passage is, as I said earlier, not what you would want to turn to first to defend Jesus' deity. John explains that uh, with utter clarity in, in chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life that was the light of men. So He is God. He is God creator, but He is also a separate person from the Father, who is also God, a separate person. 
Verse 14 of John 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. The Father did not become flesh. The Son, who is God in eternity past, became flesh. John 6, 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Who comes from heaven? The creator of heaven. No one else came from heaven. God comes from heaven and takes on flesh. John 8, 23. He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's a declaration of his deity, unless you believe Yahweh about me. I am the eternal one. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. And then in verse 56 of John 8, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and yet you have seen Abraham Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is in the Septuagint, ego eimi, I am, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, Yahweh, the eternal one. I am that I am. Jesus was saying precisely what God said to Moses when Moses said, who shall I tell Pharaoh is sending me? Tell them, I am. Jesus is saying here, I am, I am that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. But there is something more to this statement, I and the Father are one, than the simple idea that there is a simple agenda. It's not primarily a focus on their essential nature that they are one in nature, that's really not the issue, but it's also not just the idea that they are committed to same works. It is really the idea that they are committed to the same works because of that essence. They are one because they cannot not be one. I and the Father are one necessarily, non-undoably. There's a new word for you. It can't be taken away. It can't be undone. Now, look with me at verse 31. This statement, as I said, displays the oneness of the essence of the Father and the Son in purpose. In verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So they knew he was declaring something about himself that made him other than just a good guy, other than a great prophet, other than just a miracle worker. They picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works. So he gets back to the issue, right? The issue for him is the works that have been done. By the way, none of which are being done today, and I'm going to share one with you that some would say is a work in the nature of the works of Jesus. The works that were being done then are works that only God could do. We call them miracles. It's an undoing of natural reality. It's a supernatural work upon the natural. Those things are not happening Today. So, for which of them do you stone me? These works of the Father, these works that I've done from the Father. Which one are you stoning me for? Well, the Jews were ready for that by saying, it's not a good work, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. 
because you, being a man, make yourself God. So for those who don't know today that Jesus declared himself to be God, recognize that the Jews knew it, and that's why they intended to kill him. Why did Jesus die, at least from the perspective of the Jews, who manipulated a false trial and had him put to death by a Roman government? Because he claimed to be king of the Jews, God himself. The Jews knew he was displaying and declaring his deity, as did Thomas. John 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Like they say where I'm from, show me. The show me state, for those of you who don't know. It's Missouri, by the way. And yes, I'm wearing shoes these days. Thomas insisted to see what? The works. He demanded to see them. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side do not disbelieve, but believe. In case you're wondering where we're headed this morning, that's the point. The call upon your life and my life with credibility to call people to believe in the works of Jesus, that they might be forgiven for their sins. They might trust in him and walk in him faithfully. Put your finger here. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. So again, for those who refute and attempt to discredit the deity of Jesus, Thomas knew. Now what did Jesus not do at this point? Think about it for a minute. Thomas has just declared his deity. What did Jesus, how did Jesus not respond? He didn't correct him. As with the disciples, Jesus allowed Thomas to worship him. Anyone else would have said, hold on there, slow down, I'm not God. Some people treat their pastors like they're God. They get away with anything. They get away with all kinds of things. They're above the law, they're above the scripture, they're above any kind of accountability, and they may as well be God in that person's life. And again, that's idolatry, a person who worships man. But Jesus did not prevent Thomas from worshiping him. My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's the culture in which you and I live. That's the economy in which you and I live. The call upon people's lives to believe in that which they could not feel. You know, Nobody can put their hands in Jesus' side today. He's not here. So what do they believe? They believe the works of Jesus. They, they will believe the miraculous works of Jesus. What are the miraculous works going on today, if we could even call it that? Well, the better way to think of it is the expression of the miraculous work of Christ on the cross, a changed life. 
a life that graciously but rigidly sticks to what the Word of God says, that doesn't allow wiggle room for entertaining or justifying any kind of sin. The non-sovereign God, which those who will pursue, redefine and pursue, allows for a double life. In fact, it encourages it because there's no accountability with a non-sovereign God. You can wiggle out of anything. You don't have to be rational. You don't have to tell the truth. You can just live however you want because you believe that you are sovereign. Well, the Jews knew that he was displaying and declaring his deity just as Thomas did. The difference was that Thomas believed the works he saw and the Jews rejected the works they saw. Just like today, the false convert will reject the works that they see in someone's life who's actually being changed. They don't want to believe it. I told you years ago, when I first was being exposed to biblical Christianity and the Lord was starting to do a changing work in me, and I was trying to persuade my mom to understand that the religion in which she and I were saturated being very different from what I had been exposed to, and I went to college to play football, I said, Mom, tell me, though, don't you see a difference in me? And her sad response was, yeah, and I don't like it. That was a strike of honesty. That was a moment of, I think, conviction. You know, she had to acknowledge that there was a softening in my life that there was a lesser commitment to sin. There was a willingness to apologize, a willingness to confess my sin and forsake it, to say, yes, this was my doing. I was wrong there. I remember one time I, I sent my mom a letter and I said, look, I'm so sorry I've been angry my whole life. I'm so sorry for how horribly I treated you. You know what her response was? I had no idea you knew. Not I had no idea that you knew how you had affected me. I had no idea that you knew how awful you were. Beloved, know that those who know that you profess to know Christ don't believe you. They do not believe you when your life consistently displays a disinterest in confessing your sin. They don't believe you. They might be being very gracious with you, or they might simply be frightened of you if they're not confronting it. Man, it takes a lot of boldness to confront the sins of those that you love so much, that you've revered much of your life. I watched the famous Paul Washer video. Many of you know what I'm talking about. I watched just the short clip where Paul Washer is speaking to this group of 5,000 high school students, and he's going on and on about the debaucherous condition of American evangelicalism. And these self-righteous kids start cheering. Yeah, clapping. Yeah. Paul Washer says, why are you cheering? I'm talking about you. And then he goes on to explain, don't you realize what I'm giving up by knowing that I'm never going to be asked back here by telling you that? You see, that's the faithful message of the true believer. He's willing to say what the Bible says. He must say it with grace, and he's going to fail and not say it with grace. If he's really in the Lord, he's going to confess that he lacks grace from time to time. He's going to say what the Lord has said. 
to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who believe and don't see me, but what will they see? They will see the changed life of Peter. And Thomas and James. And they don't see the changed life in Judas. Because Judas was a false convert committed to himself. And if you ever wondered why in the world God would decree that that would take place, it's so that you'll know the difference. You'll know the difference between the false convert and the true convert. The false convert remains committed to himself and his works. Why did Jesus, Judas hang himself? To make up for what he had done. In Judas theology, surely that would make a difference if I, you know, punish myself. That's what Martin Luther was doing before God saved him. Flogging himself. That was the standard practice for a Catholic monk in preparation for the priesthood. That works were what he would do. Sacrifices were what he would do. Atonement were what he would do so as to satisfy God. And it was Romans 1.17 where Luther read and saw the just shall live by faith, not by works. And that's why we have this beautiful phrase, justification by faith alone. It's faith alone. <laughs> it's not any work. What are, what are works? How would you categorize works? Anything that's not faith. Anything other than belief. If you're resting in something other than belief in Jesus' works, anything, it's a false salvation. So common today that folks rest in their decision, right? I know a church that's committed to decisionism so much so that they emphasize it with that term. We need people to make decisions for Jesus. Huh? They can't. They're unable. That's what it is to be dead in your trespasses and sins. What we need is to faithfully proclaim the gospel that God would awaken them. So we trust in him. We don't trust in our ability to persuade people, and we don't trust people's ability to be persuaded. You know, like we got this relationship. Surely they'll believe me if eventually I just persuade them enough with my life and my words, show them enough kindness. No, we do those things. We show them kindness. We show them love, and we trust the Lord for the outcome. We trust the Lord for the outcome. If we trust ourselves or them or us together for the outcome, they or we get a sliver of the glory. We don't want that, except we do, right? Except we do. We do want the glory. That's our problem. That's my problem. That's your problem. But when we subject ourselves to the truth of God's word, and this is such a powerful, powerful text for us. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? Oh, beloved, this should be what you think of every morning when you awaken. Is it not written in your law? Oh, Lord, your word is a light unto my path. That the word of God would show the way. I think maybe you and I could have, over the years, become guilty of over-focusing on those who are not faithful to the word of God, such that we can get desensitized to our own faithlessness in pursuing God 
the Word of God. Isn't it easy to be critical of others and their faithlessness rather than asking the Lord, Father, maybe I ought to give up uh, those discernment ministries for six months and just focus on the Word. Maybe I ought to just pour myself into a study in sound hermeneutics, how to honestly approach the Bible so that I'm understanding it for the way you have meant it. By the way, we're going to do that in September. Really hunker down together as men and look at what it means to honestly understand the Word of God, that the Word of God would do its work in us rather than us doing a work on the Word of God. And that's what we need. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? He appeals to God, the God of the Word, for whom even the false convert has some affinity, right? The, the false believing Jews had an affinity for the Word of God because it was the single criterion upon which all their systems were built. And yet, they had a zeal for God without what? Without knowledge. Without knowledge. So he's referring back to their willingness to pick up rocks to stone him, not for doing good works, those are their words, not for doing good works, but for what? Declaring what? To be God and engaging in what? Blasphemy, right? Okay, this is where we pick up then, verse 35. If he called them gods, buckle in, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. Now, what is this phrase, if he called them gods? It's a reference to Psalm 82, and I want to start by telling you there's a lot about this we don't know and will never know. We do not know to whom he was referring in Psalm 82, verse 6, where he says, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Now, I could spend a lot of time on talking to you about the theories about who this psalm perhaps is a reference to, but we do not know. Nobody knows. Nobody that I read proclaims to know or be convinced of who this is referring to. There are a number of subjective uh, guesses. But at the beginning of the psalm, 82, says, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I say, and this is the passage we're referring to, I say, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. I believe this is tongue-in-cheek. I believe this is a sarcastic statement which the Scripture often utilizes. Behold, O gods. You read things like that throughout the book of Job. God speaking with sarcasm to Job, O great one. Job eventually gets it. He starts to affirm his own pride and his high view of self, and he realizes at the end that God has been mocking him. And so he covers his mouth with his hand. 
John 15, 25 says, But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. What's Jesus emphasizing here in our text this morning? He's emphasizing the law of God, the perfections of the word, the veracity, the sufficiency, the infallibility, the inerrancy of the word of God. Because it is from him, it is perfect in every way. Luke 24, verse 44 says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus displays a high view of the word, even in this sarcastic expression to which he refers in Psalm 82. You, O God's. It's the one place in Scripture where this happens. And interestingly, those who reject the deity of Christ use that passage in Psalm 82 and this short parenthetical phrase in John 10 to refute Christ's deity. They will say, well, yeah, there are places, in fact, where Thomas declares Jesus to be God, but all of us are gods, sort of. Of course, Kenneth Copeland believes that we all truly are gods, and you know probably if you've watched the news at all, what's going on with Kenneth Copeland. It's none of your business if I'm flying a billion-dollar jet around the world. It's my money. You can have that money, too, if you'll just give me money. Some of you have seen that before on a smaller scale. Mark 7, verse 5, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? See, this is what the false convert always wants to focus on, why you don't do things the way I like them to be done. Why don't you follow this tradition? And why do you have this tradition? And many times the false convert focuses on things that he thinks is just tradition when it's actually a command in the Word of God. Fabulous passage here. So helpful for us understanding the heart and the mind of the legalist. Verse 6, And he said to them, I'm in Mark 7 here, verse 6, And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Man, oh man, does that say it a lot. Does that open our eyes to so many experiences for so many of us where we have observed hypocrisy, we've observed false religion, we've observed the person who says one thing in the pulpit and lives quite another when he's out of it. Verse 7, in vain do they worship me. Oh, they've got some right words. I mean, they're Jews. So, of course, they've got some right theology verbally. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So they take their own traditions and they sprinkle them with Bible. Pretty soon you got a sound doctrine and people are following it and it must be right, it must be real, it must be true. He says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way. I think the NAS says nice, nicely. You nicely reject the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. This is what the spiritual manipulator does. He does everything he possibly can do to promote his own agenda, his own ideas, his own theology, and then he'll take Bible and he'll pack it all around it, just like you do when you go on a trip and you pack something in newspaper so it won't break. 
I've done that when I've returned from Malawi, and I open it up, and still things are like powder. Oh, where's the super glue? And that's what the spiritual manipulator will do. He'll super glue his theology back together at every chance rather than looking and saying, you know what, this is just tradition. This is man-made stuff. This is man's ideas. Verse 9, he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Verse 10, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. So though the Old Testament spoke of people needing to have a high view of their parents, of honoring their parents, he's saying about these traditionalists that what they wanted to do was proclaim reverence for them, loyalty to them. Forget your parents. Be loyal to me. Thus, making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. Back to John 17 for a moment. Jesus says in verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is why we do everything we do. Every ministry is committed to an honest exposure of the Word of God that it might result in the sanctification of those who have ears to hear it. Everything. Everything we do. That's the criteria. That's the filter through which we run everything that we might do. I don't have time to finish the whole message. But I want to call your attention to something I saw just this week in the news. It speaks of a guy named Reverend Philip Dunn of Valley Christian Assembly. He lost his eyesight due to macular degeneration. He was told that the effects would last for years, but that his sight could be restored. He chose to interpret this as a permanent blindness, but to will himself not for it to be permanent. He goes on to explain that while his doctor was saying, you are legally blind, no, I'm not. I'm illegally blind because God doesn't allow anything that's illegal, and this is not from God, and therefore I'm going to call it illegal blindness. Well, there's no deep doctrinal reality in that. That's just an expression of a lack of living in reality. Let the doctor tell you what it's called. He probably knows what he's talking about. And so he goes on to proclaim that one day his sight will return. And this is not a condition in which sight cannot return. It is still an amazing thing that it can happen. But in the midst of this, he does things like he'll buy a car, the article explains. He's lost his driver's license because he can't drive. He can't see his wife. He can't see his kids. He's mostly blind. But he's buying a car. And his wife says, why would you do that? Because one day I'm going to see again. And he said to the doctor, I know you can't do these things, but Jesus can. And it sounds good on the surface. It sounds like a person who's genuinely committed to the Lord. And he's even on national television. This was just this morning. If you Google it, you'll, you'll see it on Fox News. But as he expresses this, 
He points to this idea that Jesus will grant your dreams. And he says to people, don't give up. And in a 16-minute interview, apart from the article, this gal interviews him and essentially asks, you know, what would you want people to take away from this? What would you want people to learn from this? Ultimately, he preaches a message out of John 9. It's the first message that he preaches after regaining his sight. Somehow, medically, his sight is restored. And in his message about John 9, where a man, as you remember, was blind from birth, without eyes, so that the works of God could be displayed. What's the work of God that takes place in that man's heart? He believes. Jesus grants him belief. And so neither Jesus nor the man who has regained his sight walk away saying, wow, God has fulfilled my dreams. God has fulfilled my plans. What I always wanted to do has happened. And I'm so grateful for what the Lord has done for me. He even quotes, this pastor even quotes Joel 2, where we are told that the Lord has restored the years that the locusts have eaten. So he takes that 14-year period during which he had no sight, and he essentially says those years were wasted. Can you imagine? If I were to stand before you and say, the Lord can fulfill your dreams, and the whole purpose of God's work in your life is for, for you to you know, have physical sight. And perhaps there's someone in our church who has difficulty seeing and is wondering if they won't go blind in the next year or two, or someone who has some other infirmity. And we say to them, the whole purpose of God working in your life is to make you wealthy. And it never happens. Or it does happen in someone's life, and they walk away saying, look, God blessed me. I'm not sure why he's not blessing you with wealth and good sight and lots of energy. But what I can tell you is that he blessed me. And will God do that? How many godly people do you know who are physically infirmed until they go to the grave? I always think of Johnny Erickson Tata. I think of Justin Peters. There are plenty of people, you know. The, a, a lot of the godly people throughout history just didn't talk a lot about their infirmities. You know, you probably have plenty of physical infirmities that you're not walking around telling people about all the time. I think that's the better practice. But to speak of the reality that Jesus grants belief. That a life that displays the works of Jesus would not be willing to tell people that Jesus is a savior, a healer, a deliverer, and that you should keep on believing and do not give up on your dream. But rather to say to them, you're a sinner and you deserve the eternal punishment of God. But he, in his grace, grants salvation, he grants redemption, he grants forgiveness to all those who will humble themselves and cry out to him for that forgiveness. And sadly, this guy whose sight has been restored never once mentioned any of that. It was all about God restoring his driver's license so he could drive from California back to where 
he lives. As we close, look with me at the final words of John here in our passage. We'll pick back up next week to cover the rest of it. But in verse 42, many believed in him there. There's so much we need to say about this and what leads up to it. But many believed in him there. Who will believe subsequent to your faithful ministry? Who will believe? Paul says in Acts 13, 44, the next Sabbath day, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles. See, that's what he's done. He's made you a light for people in your life. Why? That you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's what we do as a church. We take salvation. We take the gospel to Madagascar and Malawi, Czech Republic, Croatia, South Africa. Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. You see that? That's what we do. We don't try to figure out who the appointed are. We share the message just as Paul and Barnabas shared the message with the unbelieving, Christ-rejecting Gentiles. And then we can go, you know, they went back to Israel to say, you know, you rejected the message, so we went to the Gentiles. And in so doing, via their faithfulness, God saved and continues to save all those that he has appointed unto eternal life. That's a beautiful life in which to be involved. That we would experience the maximum blessings of God by being faithful to his word. Father, we ask now that as we sing to the Savior, you would help us to rest in him and what he accomplished. His works, your works displayed in him, the work of salvation, the work of a changed life. Not that we would walk away and say, if you'll just accept Jesus, you can have a better life. But Lord, may we display the reality that while life in many ways is not better, it's eternally joyous, that our joy would be made complete as we share the loving message that you have called us to share, that we would see people believe in Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.